This is the Trauma Recovery Resilience Podcast, and this is for you if you are interested in compassion, connection, and relationships, and how we can all work together, creating services that do not add to harm, but rather seek to support recovery from it. I'm your host, Lisa Cherry, and this is your time to sit back and listen in on conversations that make a difference. Hello, Rachel. Are we ready? Yeah, so how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Brilliant. Right, so part two of our (laughs) phenomenally interesting conversation um, about your school and about your approach. And for anyone watching this who hasn't seen part one, please do um, go on to the uh, YouTube channel and watch part one because there was just, it was so content rich. Um, so we're just going to kind of finish off really with part two, focusing on a couple of areas. Well, one of the counter arguments that I see a lot, um, and it's quite a polarized argument, oddly enough. Um, one of the arguments that I see a lot is that, um, what about all those children who are somehow not getting their needs met because they're being bullied or because they're in school with children who are particularly challenging or they have people in their classroom that are preventing them from learning all very real scenarios and so my question to you would be in the context of your school a school that uh, for nine years has worked in a relationship focused way does not um, exclude does not um use rewards and consequences how how do you deal with that i mean i have my own ideas about how how that works in the context of your school but please um it's a really interesting question and it's one that we get asked a lot um by parents obviously because because parents send their children to school to be safe and that's our priority really um so in and i think there there isn't an easy answer um i think the answer for us is is our hugely um fantastic staff and um, we have a huge team of staff who have lots of expertise lots of experience and hold lots of wisdom really um and um so that stems from kind of you know me and the senior leadership team but then we have as part of the whole school team we have a care um, what we who we call our care team um, and within our care team there's some really specific members of staff which I'll, I'll talk about in in a little while um, but all of our teachers all of our teaching assistants are all trauma aware attachment aware so the classroom settings are um, are, are very nurturing um, in and of themselves we also have a very active nurture um, room um, and a nurture a nurture setting for those who are, we, we talk about intensive care really so for those children who need a bit of intensive care because they get you, because everybody gets some of it in in the classrooms um, the and the difference um, between the nurture room and I think sometimes nurture rooms don't work because the difference is too marked between the nurture room and the classroom and um, for us the, the difference is is just that there are fewer children and more adults um, more adults child ratio in, in the nurture room um, and that's quite a, a rigorous process now we, we've honed that now so it's, it's a really rigorous process so the nurture aspect is really quite effective in terms of um, those children who, who are um, exhibiting behaviours that are challenging because of an attachment difficulty um, there are children who don't access that at all because their they're, they're difficulties isn't attachment related. Um, we have in our care team, we have a counsellor, um, which isn't that unusual, I don't think, anywhere. I think lots of schools have at least access to, to a counsellor. 
Um, but we also have a play therapist um, who provides um, filial therapy. And I'm saying words I don't really understand, but it doesn't matter because I don't do it. Um, so she provides filial therapy and play therapy um, to our children and our families. Um, but she also really importantly provides um, supervision type support to our staff. Um, so for our staff who are experiencing children who have challenging or, or vulnerable behaviours in the classrooms, they, they have supervision sessions with her and another member of our care team, another senior member of our care team, strategy plans that I think we were talking about a little bit this morning. Um, so it's really practical support from, from those people to our staff as well about when situations arise in the classroom, how we might manage those um, for, for that particular child. Um, and we also have um, we also have a social worker who's employed by us, so not centrally employed. Um, she's our social worker. So for, for families who are very vulnerable, of which we have several, <laughs> um, the, what, uh, what the presence of our social worker means is that, um, for one, I can sleep at night because I know the safeguarding stuff's really strong. Um, but it also means that they have someone who stands shoulder to shoulder with them as well, that they, they don't feel... Um, like they have to hide anything from because there's no risk in a sense of um of asking for Juliet's support okay so you have your own social worker yeah. a play therapist yeah. clinical supervision yeah. so i know for a fact there'll be people watching you going there's no way we could have that in our school we don't have the money um you know it's all right for them I think might be might be what some people might think. How how do you do that in in the context of where we are in terms of um, funding for schools and for education and how that's playing out across the country? How on earth do you have such a robust uh, team like that? I'm not quite sure. A little bit of magic from our school business manager, I think. Uh, no, I think it, it ultimately those those roles are all part time roles. Um, so there's an element of that that it is a part-time that they are part-time posts so that there's a bit of saving in that um but um i think also the the fact that i mean you, you can afford what you value i think and it's about um the the really high value of those staff for us we also have a part-time senko who's a non-teaching as well um but i think it's about really valuing the, the support that those people can provide um so when when you're leading a school when you're managing a budget like that it's about making making sure that you can meet those needs and it might mean that you don't do things elsewhere but those needs are, are kind of they they are the priority so it's about you know we might pare things down in other places but it's not in terms of that that's not very helpful actually is it but but it is just about um really if you if you value it enough you can find a way to afford it i think yeah, and that leads me on to another question then that I'm sure people will have on the tip of their tongues, which is how does that play out in terms of academic achievement? Because regardless of what you and I understand about how safe we have to feel before we learn, the pressures that are coming top down in terms of uh, what kind of things are measured and how they're retained and, and really what Ofsted are, uh, are willing to place as important in terms of their assessment of all of that, how does that play out for you? Um, well, I mean, I, I, my philosophy and our philosophy as a school is if children don't feel safe enough to learn anyway, they're not going to learn. So there's no point trying to make them because that just trauma, re-traumatizes or 
or you know make, makes the children very very stressed um, and exaggerates the, the the challenging behaviors that we see um, so so for us it is I think you used the phrase front loading this morning I think we it's about front loading to make sure we're putting that support in place and yes they might not be in class for for the six weeks or however long that it takes but actually the progress that they then make as safe secure learners is phenomenal so we reap the benefits later on um, mm -hmm. and we have loads of case studies for that where, where some of you know where the provision that we're putting in place for these children has massive impacts further on and you know and in some cases you have to kind of just take it on the chin that the most important thing for that child is that they feel safe and you know and if that is at the loss of you know being at making expected progress or not making expected progress but being at the expect age related expectation then 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 sometimes that's a hit you have to take because because children need to feel safe first and it might be that, we, that then the benefits are reaped at key stage three or key stage four Oh, that's so beautiful to hear because as you say, I mean, that's front loading, not just for the year ahead for that classroom teacher, but that's front loading for that child as, as they move through the education system. Um, and we know, uh, we do know that uh, if we think about trauma, that we're not going to be always dealing with a chronological age and a biological age at the same place. And the fact that you're willing to do all that work, you know, has such potential to alter the trajectory for that child. And that just fills my heart. I love that. Um, I'm glad we talk about filling your bucket. I should. I think you've heard me use that phrase or seen me use the phrase about filling your bucket. So I'm glad we filled your bucket there, Lisa. <laughs> you totally have. You totally have. And I'm very aware that you're going to be needing to um, to get home at some point. So I'm gonna. I just want to finish up with one one last question. Really, I'm a firm believer that we are motivated by our experiences. They drive us, they feed our passion, they're why we go into the kind of work that we go into. Um, and so I'm interested in what motivated you to come into this work and to, um, to be so passionate, actually, not just coming into the work, why did you go into education and teaching, but, but to become so passionate about relation relational approaches to behavior nine years ago when it wasn't hip it wasn't cool it wasn't trendy and there were not lots of people wondering about going this is the future how did you get to that point um so in terms of coming into teaching um it's a long story but it can be told quite shortly my grandma was a teacher um and four of her five children were teachers um three of them ended their careers as primary heads um, my mum being one of those three uh, my auntie was a secondary I think she was leader of a department head of a department or, or something um, so it kind of is in the blood um, I was never going to be a teacher I was I did a, a science degree um, uh, of which I can remember nothing um, but um, and I was going to go into forensic science or medicine and then half between my second and third year at uni when I'd finished for the summer my mum's school secretary had gone off suddenly on sick. Uh, so she asked me to fill in because I was the person who was next available. And she, I think she thought it would be cheap labour. Um, and, uh, and as soon as I kind of went into school and spent that length of time in, in a school um, and kind of be in front of her, she, you see the vulnerable kids first, I think, don't you? And, um, and that, that, at that point, that was, you know, this is, this is it for me. This is what I want to do. Um, so I did a postgraduate, um, I actually did the graduate teacher programme um, at that point and, um, and the rest is history really but I think in terms of, of my philosophy 
it has matured and evolved over the years and I've been teaching now for um 21 years which makes me go <laughs> like that um but but I think I'm a very different teacher than I was when I was 21 and obviously that comes with age and maturity I think a little bit but also the and when I first started my headship which was 11 years ago now um I was really lucky to um to have um, an educational psychologist that we work really closely with who was really passionate about attachment-based learning, attachment-based parenting. Um, and she supported our school and really talked to us many, 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 many times about, about, um, about the importance of attachment and, and how behaviours may well manifest themselves outside of the commas. Um, and was really quite passionate early philosophy as a head and, and I'll always be immensely grateful to her for that. Um, she also talks about nurture a lot. She, she, her expertise was nurture, um, which follows on from, from the expertise about attachment. So our nurture practice was very much founded in those very early, early years with, um, with Julie, who was the educational psychologist. We also were lucky enough to, to get restorative approaches training at a very similar time to that. So the two fit together and dovetailed quite nicely um, and I have a, um, a professional coach or a mentor um, who actually is now a, a very 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 valued and loved friend um, and he absolutely pushes us ever further really into a, that humanistic approach about how can we get it writer he uses the phrase writer for our children so how can we get it writer for all of our children um, all of the time and and how can we make sure that the, the system is a hundred percent for all of for hundred percent of the kids um, so so uh, you know so the half formed ideas then become a perfect storm and with the right support and the right staff um, and, and the right support from the governing body and I've always been really lucky that our governing body have really valued the things that, that we've talked about. So yeah, so it's a perfect formula. So the philosophy has evolved and emerged and it's still evolving and we'll still, and we'll continue, I hope, um, to evolve. But, um, but the focus is always getting it right for, for all of our kids. Aww. Not just, you know, all of our kids. Yeah. So. That's so lovely, Rachel. And, you know, I'm sure I said it this morning. I'm sure I've said it on Twitter and I'll say it again. You are a real champion for children and, um, you know, we really need lots of champions for children right now. It's a challenging climate. It's a difficult uh, time in in education. And um, people like you just make my heart sing. So thank you so much for taking the time. Can I just interrupt as well? Because I forgot I wanted to say these bits <laughs> about the children that we, we've met along the way. And I think they, the, the children that, um, that, that there are four or five children I mean all the children that, that have gone through our school are all incredibly important to us but there are perhaps a handful five or six that have really changed the way we practice and have really made us look really hard at our provision um, because it hasn't fit for them um, and it's not been fit for them so so there you know um, there are the children who came to us initially from AP who'd had a really bad experience in alternative provision um, and came to us as a mainstream provider and, and, and thrived. Um, but they thrived because we really analysed what, what our provision did for them. But then there was a little boy, and I think I've spoken to you about him before, where he'd come to us at the beginning of his year two, having experienced um, between the age of three and, and that point, uh, I think nine failed foster placements and a failed adoption and separation from his 
obviously his birth family, but his, his birth brother, and Keynes was in a hugely traumatized state. Um, and we had to really, because we wanted, we didn't want to fail because we didn't want him to have another failed attempt at, at being part of and belonging to something. So we had to really look at, at how we were going to set our school up for him and change our school. And I think that's the difference. And we think we're talking about just the change in we'll say the child needs to change this to belong to our school. And actually we look at it from the other angle and say, what do we do that will enable us to change? What can we change that will enable us to fit this child? Um, and that's a real difference. And I think, and, and that's why the, the, the process evolves because there will always be the next child that really challenges us because there will always be a child that we're not right for. So it's about how we make that happen for for those children. Um, so yeah, so sorry, I was just interrupted you. I thought that was quite important to say. It's very important. And, and I think, you know, that just sort of leaves me with one last question really because I think part one and now part two has just been so content rich for people to think about how they might move their um score forward or how they might move their own pra individual practice forward um, but what i would ask then just finally is if there was one thing that you could say to somebody that might convince them to uh work in this way and to uh challenge their current practice and think about working in a relationship relational approach um what would you say to them it's about, for, for me, it's about looking to the future and how we're, what we're creating for a person um, will, will massively impact on who they are in the future. And, and, and I think the, that I just want to make sure that whatever we do has a really positive impact on everybody in the future. So some of the experiences that our children have will shape the, the way they behave in the future. And, and the way they behave might be really negatively to my daughter in a, you know, in a relationship or, or my son or, you know. So I, I want to make sure that, I, that our school, that our provision is doing no harm, but actually is doing good for all of our kids. Um, because we don't want to ever um, be, and I'm going to use the word responsible, because I think we are as practitioners and as professionals responsible for shaping somebody's lives so they, that they can't be a useful, kind, good human being. And, and that's, that's the real driver for me. If we front load early on with really good relationship stuff, then, um, then, then we impact the world in a really positive place. And it will change the world if we impact that in, um, you know, if we have that impact on enough children, then it is, it is world changing and it can be life changing. And it's a starfish story, isn't it? It changed the world for that one. And, and actually that's enough. So if we can change the world, we're changing the world one child at a time, really. Beautiful. I can't think of a better place to uh, end our conversation. I just want to thank you again. Um, thank you. I think you're fantastic. Really enjoyed speaking to you and have a great evening. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to the Trauma Recovery Resilience Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Cherry, brought to you straight from the heart of the knowledge that high quality relationships are the cornerstone of learning, healing and growing. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing or reviewing. Until next time.